Tonight's story, The Reluctant Dragon, by Kenneth Graham. Footprints in the snow have been unfailing provokers of sentiment, ever since snow was a first a white wonder in this drab-colored world of ours. In a poetry book presented to one of us by an aunt, there was a poem by one Wordsworth in which they stood out strongly, with a picture all to themselves, too. But we didn't think very highly, either of the poem or the sentiment. Footprints in the sand now were quite another matter, and we grasped Crusoe's attitude of mind much more easily than Wordsworth. Excitement and mystery, curiosity and suspense, these were the only sentiments that tracks, whether in sand or in snow, were able to arouse in us. We had awakened early that winter morning, puzzled at first by the added light that filled the room. Then, when the truth at last fully dawned on us, and we knew that snowballing was no longer a wistful dream, but a solid certainty waiting for us outside, it was a mere brute fight for the necessary clothes, and the lacing of boots seemed a clumsy invention, and the buttoning of coats an unduly tedious form of fastening, with all that snow going to waste at our very door. When dinner time came, we had to be dragged in by the scruff of our necks. The short armistice over, the combat was resumed. But presently Charlotte and I, a little weary of contests and of missiles that ran shudderingly down inside one's clothes, forsook the trampled battlefield of the lawn and went exploring the blank virgin spaces of the white world that lay beyond. It stretched away unbroken on every side of us, this mysterious soft garment under which our familiar world had so suddenly hidden itself. Faint imprints showed where a casual bird had alighted, but of other traffic there was next to no sign, which made these strange tracks all the more puzzling. We came across them first at the corner of the shrubbery, and poured over them long, our hands on our knees. Experienced trappers that we knew ourselves to be, it was annoying to be brought up suddenly by a beast we could not at once identify. Don't you know, said Charlotte, rather scornfully. Thought you knew all the beasts that ever was. This put me on my mettle, and I hastily rattled off a string of animal names, embracing both the Arctic and the Tropic Zones, but without much real confidence. No, said Charlotte on consideration. They won't any of them quite do. Seems like something lizardy. Did you say an iguanodoon? Might be that, perhaps. But that's not British, and we want a real British beast. I think it's a dragon. Isn't half big enough, I objected. Well, all dragons must be small to begin with, said Charlotte, like everything else. Perhaps this is a little dragon who's got lost. A little dragon would be rather nice to have. He might scratch and spit, but he couldn't do anything, really. Let's track him down. So we set off into the wide, snow-clad world, hand in hand, our hearts big with expectation, complacently confident that by a few smudgy traces in the snow, we were in a fair way to capture a half-grown specimen of a fabulous beast. We ran the monster across the paddock and along the hedge of the next field, and then he took to the road like any tame, civilized taxpayer. Here his tracks became blended with, and lost among more ordinary footprints. But imagination and a fixed idea will do a great deal, and we were sure we knew the direction a dragon would naturally take. The traces, too, kept reappearing at intervals, 
At least Charlotte maintained they did, and, as it was her dragon, I left the following of this lot to her, and trotted along peacefully, feeling that it was an expedition anyhow, and something was sure to come out of it. Charlotte took me across another field or two, and through a copse, and into a fresh road, and I began to feel sure it was only her confounded pride that made her go on pretending to see dragon tracks, instead of owning she was entirely at fault, like a reasonable person. At last, she dragged me excitedly through a gap in the hedge of an obviously private character. The waste, open world of field and hedgerow appeared, and we found ourselves in a garden, well-kept, secluded, most undragon-haunted in appearance. Inside, I knew where we were. This was the garden of my friend the circus man, though I had never approached it before by a lawless gap from this unfamiliar side. And here was the circus man himself, placidly smoking a pipe as he strolled up and down the walks. I stepped up to him and asked him politely if he had lately seen a beast. May I inquire, he said with all civility, what sort of beast you may happen to be looking for? It's a lizardy sort of beast, I explained. Charlotte says it's a dragon, but she doesn't really know much about beasts. The circus man looked round about him slowly. I don't think, he said, that I've seen a dragon in these parts recently. But if I come across one, I'll know it belongs to you, and I'll have him taken round to you at once. Thank you very much, said Charlotte. But don't trouble about it, please, because perhaps it isn't a dragon at all. Only I thought I saw his little footprints in the snow, and we followed him up, and they seemed to lead right in here. But maybe it's all a mistake, and thank you all the same. Oh, no trouble at all, said the circus man cheerfully. I should be only too pleased. But, of course, as you say, it may be a mistake. And it's getting dark, and he seems to have got away for the present, whatever he is. You'd better come in and have some tea. I am quite alone, and we'll make a roaring fire. And I've got the biggest book of beasts you ever saw. It's got every beast in the world, and all of them colored. And we'll try and find your beast in it. We were always ready for tea at any time, and especially when combined with beasts. There was marmalade, too. An apricot jam brought in expressly for us. And afterwards, the beast book was spread out. And as the man truly said, it contained every sort of beast that had ever been in the world. The striking of six o'clock set the more prudent Charlotte nudging me, and we recalled ourselves with an effort from Beastland, and reluctantly stood up to go. Here, I'm coming along with you, said the circus man. I want another pipe and a walk'll do me good. You needn't talk to me unless you like. Spirits rose to their wanted level again. The way it seemed so long, the outside world so dark and eerie, after the bright warm room and the highly colored beast book. But a walk with a real man, why, that was a treat in itself. We set off briskly, the man in the middle. I looked up at him and wondered whether I should ever live to smoke a big pipe with that careless sort of majesty. But Charlotte, whose young mind was not set on tobacco as a possible goal, made herself heard from the other side. 
Melvin, she said, tell us a story, please, won't you? The man sighed heavily and looked about him. I knew it, he groaned. I knew I should have to tell a story. Oh, why did I leave my pleasant fireside? Well, I will tell you a story, only let me think a minute. So he thought a minute, and then he told us his story. Long ago, might have been hundreds of years ago, in a cottage halfway between this village and yonder shoulder of the downs up there, a shepherd lived with his wife and their little son. Now the shepherd spent his days, and at certain times of the year, his nights too, up on the wide ocean bosom of the downs, with only the sun and the stars and the sheep for company, and the friendly, chattering world of men and women far out of sight and hearing. But his little son, when he wasn't helping his father, and often when he was as well, spent much of his time buried in big volumes that he borrowed from the affable gentry and interested parsons of the country round about. And his parents were very fond of him, and rather proud of him, too, though they didn't let on in his hearing, so he was left to go to his own way and read as much as he liked, and instead of frequently getting a cuff on the side of the head, as might very well have happened to him, he was treated more or less as an equal by his parents, who sensibly thought it a very fair division of labor, that they should supply the practical knowledge and he the book. They knew that book-learning often came in useful at a pinch, in spite of what their neighbors said. What the boy chiefly dabbled in was natural history and fairy tales, and he just took them as they came in a sandwichy sort of way, without making any distinctions, and really his course of reading strikes one as rather sensible. One evening the shepherd, who for some nights past had been disturbed and preoccupied, and off his usual mental balance, came home all of a tremble, and sitting down to the table where his wife and son were peacefully employed, she with her seam, he, in following out the adventures of the giant with no heart in his body, exclaimed with much agitation, It's all up with me, Maria. Never no more can I go up on them there downs, or is it ever so? Now don't you take on like that, said his wife, who was a very sensible woman. But tell us all about it first. Whatever it is 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 giving you this shake-up, and then me and you and the son here between us, we ought to be able to get to the bottom of it. It began some nights ago, said the shepherd. You know that cave up there? I never liked it, somehow, and the sheep never liked it either, and when sheep don't like a thing, there's generally some reason for it. Well, for some time past, there's been faint noises coming from that cave. Noises like heavy sighings with grunts mixed up in them. And sometimes a snoring far away down. Real snoring, yet somehow not honest snoring like you and me nights, you know. I know, said the boy quietly. Of course, I was terrible frightened, the shepherd went on. Yet somehow I couldn't keep away. So this very evening... Before I came down, I took a cast round by the cave quietly, and there, oh, Lord, there I saw him as last, as plain as I see you. Saw who, said his wife, beginning to share in her husband's nervous terror. Why, him, I'm a telling you, said the shepherd. He was sticking halfway out of the cave, 
and seemed to be enjoying the cool of the evening in a poetical sort of way. It was as big as four-cart horses and all covered with shiny scales, deep blue scales at the top of them, shading off to a tender sort of green below. As he breathed, there was a sort of flicker over his nostrils that you see over our chalk roads in a baking windless day in summer. He had his chin on his paws, and I should say, he was meditating about things. Oh, yes, a peaceable sort of beast enough, and not ramping or carrying on or doing anything but what was quite right and proper. I admit all that, and yet what am I to do? Scales, you know, and claws, and a tail for certain. Though I didn't see that end of them. I ain't used to them, and I don't older them, and that's a fact. The boy, who had apparently been absorbed in his book during his father's recital, now closed the volume, yawned, clasped his hands behind his head, and said sleepily, It's all right, father. Don't you worry. It's only a dragon. Only a dragon, cried his father. What do you mean, sitting there, you and your dragons? Only a dragon indeed. And what do you know about it? Because it is, and because I do know, replied the boy quietly. Look here, father. You know we've each of us got our line. You know about sheep and weather and things. I know about dragons. I always said, you know, that that cave up there was a dragon cave. I always said it must have belonged to a dragon sometime, and ought to belong to a dragon now, if rules count for anything. Well, now you tell me it has got a dragon, and so that's all right. I'm not half as much surprised as when you told me it hadn't got a dragon. Rules always come right if you wait quietly. Now, please, just leave this all to me, and I'll stroll up tomorrow morning. No, in the morning I can't. I've got a whole heap of things to do. Well, perhaps in the evening, if I'm quite free, I'll go up and have a talk to him, and you'll find it'll be all right. Only please, don't you go worrying around there without me. You don't understand him a bit, and they're very sensitive, you know. He's quite right, father, said the sensible mother. As he says, dragons is his line and not ours. He's wonderful knowing about book beasts, as everyone allows. To tell the truth, I'm half happy in my own mind, thinking of that poor animal lying alone up there, without a bit of hot supper or anyone to change the news with. And maybe we'll be able to do something for him. And if he ain't quite respectable, our boy will find it out quick enough. He's got a pleasant sort of way with him that makes everybody tell him everything. Next day, after he'd had his tea, the boys trolled up the chalky track that led to the summit of the downs. And there, sure enough, he found the dragon, stretched lazily on the sward in front of his cave. The view from that point was a magnificent one. To the right and left, the bare and willowy leagues of downs. In front, the vale, with its clustered homesteads, its threads of white roads running through orchards and well-tilled acreage, and far away, a hint of grey old cities on the horizon. A cool breeze played over the surface of the grass and the silver shoulder of a large moon was showing above distant junipers. No wonder the dragon seemed in a peaceful and contented mood. Indeed, as the boy approached, he could hear the beast purring with a happy regularity. Well, we live and learn, he said to himself. None of my books ever told me that dragons purred. 
Hello, dragon, said the boy quietly, when he had got up to him. The dragon, on hearing the approaching footsteps, made the beginning of a courteous effort to rise. But when he saw it was a boy, he set his eyebrows severely. Now don't you hit me, he said, or bung stones or squirt water or anything. I won't have it, I tell you. Not gonna hit you, said the boy wearily, dropping on the grass beside the beast. And don't, for goodness sakes, keep on saying don't. I hear so much of it. It's monotonous and makes me tired. I've simply looked in to ask you how you were and all that sort of thing. But if I'm in the way, I can easily clear out. I have lots of friends, and no one can see I'm in the habit of shoving myself in where I'm not wanted. No, no. Don't go off in a huff, said the dragon hastily. Fact is, I'm as happy up here as the days long. Never without an occupation, dear fellow, never without an occupation. And yet, between ourselves, it is a trifle dull at times. The boy bit off a talk of grass and chewed it. Going to make a long stay here, he asked politely. Can't hardly say at present, replied the dragon. It seems a nice place enough, but I've only been here a short time. And one must look about and reflect and consider before settling down. It's rather a serious thing, settling down. Besides, now, I'm going to tell you something you'd never guess if you tried ever so. Fact is, I'm such a confoundedly lazy beggar. You surprise me, said the boy civilly. It's the sad truth, said the dragon, settling down between his paws and evidently delighted to have found a listener at last. And I fancy that's really how I came to be here. You see, all the other fellows were so active and earnest and all that sort of thing, always rampaging and skirmishing and scouring the desert sands and pacing the margin of the sea and chasing knights all over the place and devouring damsels and going on generally, whereas I like to get my meals regular and then to prop my back against a bit of rock and snooze a bit and wake up and think of things going on and how they kept going on just the same, you know. So when it happened, I got fairly caught. When what happened, please? asked the boy. That's just what I don't precisely know, said the dragon. I suppose the earth sneezed or shook itself or the bottom dropped out of something. Anyhow, there was a shake and a roar and a general stramish, and I found myself miles away, underground, and wedged in as tight as tight. Well, thank goodness my wants are few. And at any rate, I had peace and quietness and wasn't always being asked to come along and do something. And I've got such an active mind, always occupied, I assure you. But time went on, and there was a certain sameness about the life, and at last I began to think it would be fun to work my way upstairs and see what you other fellows were doing. So I scratched and burrowed and worked this way and that way, and last I came out through this cave here. 
And I like the country, and the view, and the people, what I've seen of them. And on the whole, I feel inclined to settle down right here. What's your mind always occupied about, asked the boy. That's what I want to know. The dragon blushed slightly and looked away. Presently, he said bashfully, Did you ever, just for fun, try to make up poetry? Verses, you know? Of course I have, said the boy. Heaps of it, and some of it's quite good. I feel sure only there's no one here cares about it. Mother's very kind and all that when I read it to her, and so's father for that matter. But somehow they don't seem to... Exactly, cried the dragon. My own case exactly. They don't seem to, and you can't argue with them about it. Now you've got culture you have. I could tell it on you at once. And I should just like your candid opinion about some little things I threw off lightly when I was down there. I'm awfully pleased to have met you, and I'm hoping the other neighbors will be equally agreeable. There was a very nice old gentleman up here only last night, but he didn't seem to want rude. That was my father, said the boy, and he is a nice old gentleman, and I'll introduce you some day if you like. Can't you two come up here and dine or something tomorrow? asked the dragon eagerly. Only, of course, if you've got nothing better to do, he added politely. Thanks awfully, said the boy. But we don't go out anywhere without my mother, and to tell you the truth, I'm afraid she might not approve of you. You see, there's no getting over the hard fact that you're a dragon, is there? And when you talk of settling down and the neighbors and so on, I can't help feeling that you don't quite realize your position. You're an enemy of the human race, you see. Haven't got an enemy in the world, said the dragon cheerfully. Too lazy to make them to begin with. And if I do read other fellows my poetry, I'm always ready to listen to theirs. Oh dear, cried the boy. I wish you'd try and grasp the situation properly. When the other people find you out, they'll come after you with spears and swords and all sorts of things. You'll have to be exterminated, according to their way of looking at it. You're a scourge and a pest and a baneful monster. Not a word of truth in it, said the dragon, wagging his head solemnly. Character will bear the strictest investigation. And now... There's a little sonnet thing I was working on when you appeared on the scene. Oh, if you won't be sensible, cried the boy, getting up. I'm going off home. No, I can't stop for sonnets, my mother's sitting up. I'll look you up tomorrow, sometime or other, and do, for goodness sake, try and realize that you're a pestilential scourge, or you'll find yourself in a most awful fix. Good night. We'll continue with our story on our next episode. I want to remind you that we're always on the lookout for great public domain stories like this one to feature on the podcast. If you know of any, please let us know. BigVoiceJ at gmail.com Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep each and every single night. We also have a YouTube channel, tiny.cc slash bedtime. 
Thank you so much for listening. Night.